Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Uh, wow, that's good. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and um, glad you're here this morning. We're going to be in Genesis 26 which, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. In fact, if you don't have a Bible at all, you can take one of those home with you. Um, again, if you don't have one at all. But we're in Genesis 26. Uh, that's on page 16. And some of the Bibles, it's on page 20. Some of the other Bibles, depending on which one you get. So it's um, a 50% chance you might get it right. All right. We're in Genesis 26. Like I said, we're going to be talking about God's covenant with Isaac this morning. It's an interesting chapter. It's one that I was a little intimidated by. I still sort of am as I approach it, Um, and and we'll we'll get to that. So let me pray for us before I get too deep into it, and uh, and then we'll we'll go. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning eager to hear from your word, uh, ready to um, receive instruction from you, knowing that uh, not only do you call us to be holy, but you empower us with grace uh, to, to do just that. Um, you don't put everything in our hands, but instead uh, you, um, you carry us through with grace. And so I pray as I teach, as we read Genesis 26, as we consider uh, your work in the life of Isaac, that it would appear very applicable for us in our own circumstances, which are not all too different. And I pray that more than anything, um, we would have a clearer glimpse of the gospel and what that will and should and can accomplish in our lives. And so um, help us to think clearly um, and joyfully this morning. Encourage us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, Genesis 26, we've been working through Genesis for a while. We took a break, and then we're, we're going to take a break in a, in a few weeks. But Genesis 26, uh, it comes at a, uh, at a weird time. Uh, in the last chapter, we witnessed the birth of Jacob and Esau. Okay, so Isaac's children. And then Genesis 26 focuses on Isaac And then Genesis 27, which Brad will be preaching through next week, picks back up with Jacob and Esau again. Isaac's there, but the focus is really on these two brothers. So we go from Abraham, Isaac's sort of thrown in, and and then his sons, and then then we go, we we focus primarily on Jacob for the rest of Genesis, and, and here's our chance to really look at Isaac, what his life signified what it means for us, what, what it means in the context of Genesis and, and really of the whole Bible. It's actually the only chapter in the entire Bible that focuses primarily on Isaac. And you may say, well, we know Isaac exists. We've read about Isaac before. We've seen him say things. We've seen him do things. Isaac's been here. And that's true. But in every other circumstance, it's really always been about what's going on around Isaac or what's happening to Isaac but it's never really what's going on inside of Isaac. What's happening? What, what is Isaac doing? And this chapter, it zeroes in on him. Um, for example, we, we've prayed for Isaac. We prayed with, with Abraham and Sarah that he would be born, that they would have a child, right? We, we struggled through that with Ishmael. And, 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 then, and then God, he told him, no, there's going to be a promised son. Isaac is going to be his name. This, this is going to happen, I promise you. And so we, we've seen that. Um, we have, uh, we've seen him nearly killed, uh, at the hands of his father, which was special for all of us. We have watched God find a wife for him. Again, he was waiting somewhere else while another person, Abraham's servant, went and sought a wife for Isaac. Isaac is important, but he's not the main guy. Um, and and so then in a sense, we really hardly know him, it feels like. And, and like I said, considering that he's really about to leave the scene, we have to ask then, why, why chapter 26? What, what's the author trying to say to us? Isaac is not a key figure in, in the sense that Jacob and Abraham are key figures. 
So, so why Isaac? Um, and in a way, it, it's kind of encouraging to me, and I hope to you, because Isaac, now look, Isaac, he's one of the patriarchs. He's a big deal. The promise of God carries from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. That's, that's huge. It's important. Not, we can't say that about ourselves in the same way that Isaac can say it, right? So it's not to say that, you know, oh, poor Isaac, what was him? But at the same time, he's sandwiched between two great, great men in the Bible, Abraham and Jacob. He gets one chapter, that's it. He fades off into the sunset. It's encouraging to me. He's an ordinary guy compared to the other guys we've been talking about so far. But God made a promise to him, the same as he made a promise to Abraham and to Jacob. God worked through Isaac, the same that he worked through Abraham and through Jacob. Uh, And so I I draw encouragement from that. Um, It makes it just seem a little bit more realistic in my mind. I I don't know. So the question, I guess, that we we have to ask ourselves as we go into chapter 26 um, is, okay, now that Abraham is dead, how does the promise and covenant of God transfer to the next generation? Think about it with me. God makes a promise to Abraham. He calls Abraham, a pagan, out of the wilderness and says, go to this other place. I will bless you and be with you. I'll be your God, right? Abraham's father could not have said that. Abraham's grandfather did not say that. Abraham has no heritage of faith that he is the, that he's the, the heir of. So, so Isaac really is, is he's, he's a second generation Jew, I don't know. He, he's, he's, the, he's the first generation to be born to, these, uh, to, to Abraham, the recipient of this covenant with God. We've never seen this before. And, and, and so we, we have to, to wrestle with, okay, well, is God's promise that he made to Abraham, we saw him make it to Abraham, is that going to carry on down the line? And if so, spoiler alert, it does. How does that happen? What's the means by which God does this? What's the means by, how, how does Isaac interact here? Is it the same as his father? Is it different? What do we do with that? So um, here's how I'm going to tackle it, because we've got a lot of ground to cover, and even now I'm, I'm having a hard time keeping out other thoughts that I want to throw out there. Um, so I'm going to tackle this piecemeal, okay? So we'll, we'll start out, we'll take it just a section at a time, so just, just kind of roll with me. So we're going to start in Genesis 26, 1 through 5. I'm going to read through those verses. I think they set us up for the rest of the chapter, and, and then we'll, we'll keep going through there. So let me read for us. Um, now there was a famine in the land... Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all of these lands." And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." The trick about Genesis 26, it's the trick, uh, the, the, the difficulty here is that it's very repetitive. Things are said, people show, like actual names show up that are identical to events and people and circumstances that show up in the life of Abraham, Isaac's father. And so, uh, not wanting to just repeat what we've already learned through Genesis 12, Genesis 20, 21, we have to see, okay, why does the author choose to repeat some of these things? We get it. We know this. He could have just said, and Isaac was just like his dad. But he didn't do that. He spent a whole chapter showing us how. And I think part of that is also to show us how maybe he's a little bit different and also to highlight for us the key similarities between the two so that we can adopt them for ourselves. What I mean, let's, let's look back at, uh, at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is the, the first, uh, this is the initial calling of God on Abraham's life. This is the, the first promise that is made. Um, and, and God 
says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That should sound familiar to us. We just read it. Uh, Maybe with a few more bits and pieces added in, a few words modified or taken out. But it's the same general concept. It's the same, uh, the, the, the core is the same. God is saying the same things to Isaac that he said to his father Abraham. Um, just to summarize, you know, we, we see Isaac, he, he's in a place, there's a famine that happened to Abraham, by the way. Uh, there's a, a move that Isaac makes to a place called Gerar. Uh, a king there is named Abimelech. Okay, the same thing happened to Abraham. He faced a famine, he moved to Egypt. Uh, but then later on in his life, he, he does run into a king named Abimelech in the same place. Uh, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. And then, and then the Lord appears to Isaac. The Lord appeared to Abraham. The same things are happening. Um, but what does the Lord say this time to Isaac? I, I know he, I just said that, that the promise is essentially the same thing as chapter 12, and it is. But let's examine exactly what he says to Isaac uh, because it's important. Um, we, we see one thing, uh, a prohibition of travel to Egypt. Okay, well, that's a little bit different, right? When, when God met with Abraham, he actually told him to, to go to, to Egypt, I think. At any rate, Abraham goes, and it's not a big deal. So, so, uh, so that happens. But here God tells Isaac explicitly, don't leave. Don't go to Egypt. Stay put in Gerar where you are. Uh, in fact, God commands him to be a sojourner, to be a complete stranger and a foreigner in this land that you're, you're stationed at right now. That's what God tells him to do. Uh, similar maybe to what we've seen with Abraham. God reassures Isaac of his presence and of his blessing. Uh, he says, uh, let's see, um, I will establish, this is verse 3, I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Um, it's, it's in the same line as Abraham's, but it's not for Abraham this time. It's for Isaac. It's not for Abraham's offspring this time. It's for Isaac's offspring this time. There's a transfer happening. God is moving this on to the next generation. God reiterates the same covenant blessings that he had for Abraham, land, offspring, um, the blessing of, of all nations. These things carry us through the whole Bible uh, in different ways. But specifically for Abraham and Isaac, it's, it's identical. Same land, the same sand, uh, same promises. So what I'd like to focus on is verse 5. Uh, verse 5 is tricky. It, makes, it raises a lot of questions. Verse 5 says, because, this is the Lord speaking to Isaac, and he's saying, I will establish my covenant with you just like I did for your daddy, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Why verse 5? What does it mean in this context? We have to wrestle with that. Because if we're not careful, we can wander into a mode of thinking that maybe God's promises are earned by our works. Maybe there are things we can do to please God and make him favorable toward us. Based on all of Scripture and even based on Genesis itself and the life of Abraham whom God is referencing here, say that's not the case. Uh, verse 5, it, it echoes to me Genesis twenty two nineteen. 19. We read this a couple of weeks ago. Let me refresh your memory. This is when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Um, what a brutal memory for him to have. Um, so, so God tells Abraham, to sacrifice Isaac, we know, and, and I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon because I think uh, there's a very good explanation of what is taking place there. It's not as if God is a bloodthirsty villain trying to kill innocent children, um, but rather that the firstborn is, is really God's due. Uh, 
God makes a claim on all the firstborn children in the history of the Bible. Uh, they're not all sacrificed. In fact, none of them are. There's always a substitute that God provides for them to uh, be redeemed. Uh, and the same thing happens here. God provides a way for Isaac's life to be redeemed. This is the price for sin. Abraham knows that, and so he's willing to offer his son. Um, but the Lord provides a way out. He provides a substitute um, so that sin can be paid for another way. Uh, but Genesis twenty two nineteen, 19, um, the Lord reiterates or has reiterated his promise to, Isaac, to Abraham, uh, saying you know, ex- uh, expressly that uh, he will multiply his offspring. Uh, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Uh, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And verse 19, wait, that can't be right. Hold on here. Give me a second. I don't care if it's awkward for you. Um, is it 18? No. At any rate, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to tell you what it says. So there's a verse somewhere in this where the Lord reiterates his promise. Uh, gum it. No, I'm skipping that. All right, so moving forward. That's so frustrating. Verse 5, God explicitly tells him, you're called to obey. Uh, Verse 18, thank you. Yes, it was verse 18. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, So it reminds us of that. God encourages Abraham to obey him. Uh, God rewards Abraham for obeying him. God blesses Abraham for obeying him. Uh, so obedience is an important thing when it comes to this covenant between God and Abraham. And certainly now we see when it comes to this covenant between God and Isaac. And so uh, the question we have to ask, okay, well, was Abraham perfect? I mean, there's no specific verse for that. Uh, but when we read Genesis, the, the consensus is no, right? Isaac, Isaac, Abraham, makes a lot of mistakes, and he sins in, in various ways against God. Uh, one in particular in which he constantly lies about the nature of his relationship with his wife, calling her his sister rather than his actual wife, uh, opening her up to the possibility of prostitution and being part of some guy's harem. I mean, that's a problem, right? And we don't see Jesus doing that. Uh, this is, this is, Abraham's not a perfect guy. Uh, and, and so um, Abraham, you know, we, can't, we can't say that he's perfect. Uh, does Abraham's obedience, did that earn any semblance or, or sense of salvation from God? Do we see Abraham making anything where God suddenly now has to act in response in a way that will save Abraham or give him eternal life or something to that effect? Uh, I mean, I, I think we can say pretty clearly the answer is no. Genesis 15, verse 6. This is what I was mistakenly thinking of before. Um, excuse me. Are you kidding me? There it is. Okay. Uh, 15 verse 6. God reiterates his promise to, to Abraham. And, and then Abraham, uh, it says, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We've talked about this as well in previous sermon. Uh, but the idea there is that Abraham's faith, is, is, it's through his faith that God counts him righteous. Through his faith, his trust in God's promise to him um, that, that the Lord's covenant with him is, is held intact and sustained. That, that's what brings this about. Not Abraham's works, his deeds. Uh, and, and it's interesting because verse 5 in chapter 26, again, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What statutes? <laughs> What commandments? What laws? Those don't exist. Uh, Exodus is the next book. The Ten Commandments come in the next book. No, Abraham, Abraham is more than just, he's more than just checking off a list of rules. He doesn't have a list. He is obedient to the Lord. And, and I think it is rooted in faith. James 1.22, 
through verse 25. It says, uh, in regarding faith and works and the nature of obeying God, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a lot of talk out there about obeying the word, doing, acting, right? We see that. We emphasize that. But don't, don't miss out on the end of verse 25 there. He will be blessed in his doing. There's an expectation of blessing for the Christian who walks in obedience of the word of God. I'm not talking about prosperity and wealth and all those sort of things that we tend to muddle the word of God with. No, what I mean is, as we obey, as Abraham obeyed, as he trusted the Lord's words to him and acted on them, He received blessing. He received grace. And let's not forget, too, that, that it is grace itself whereby God condescends to Abraham in the first place to even give him this means of blessing. So as we read this, as I talk about obedience, don't, don't misunderstand me. Not talking about obeying in a way that will make God owe us favors or make God pleased with us over against our sin. No. Talk about obedience. Talk about obedience that is rooted in the expectation of grace. It's rooted in the hope of grace. It's rooted in faith. That's what I mean. And that's what Genesis 26 is getting at, as we'll see. James 2, 14 through 16 gets very clear about this relationship between works and faith. And, and it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without actually giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James is not saying that we must earn our salvation, that we must earn God's favor. James is saying that faith that claims to have God's favor acts out in a different way than rebellion and disobedience. I think that's a principle that we can understand. Romans 4, 9 through 14 also says specifically about Abraham is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Circumcision being shorthand for the law, shorthand for doing all the nit- nitty-gritty of, of, of the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law. And so is this blessing conferred to Abraham, conferred to all who you know, desire salvation? Is that only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, right? I just read that, Genesis fifteen six. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had already by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. To make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The relationship of obedience, the relationship of law and faith, of obedience and faith, of following God and obeying his commands and trusting the Lord for salvation and for uh, his favor is, it's, it's one of grace. And our obedience then is fueled by that. 
this example then that, that God gives to Isaac in verse 5 is really important. Because Abraham has reiterated the covenant, his promise, same one that he gave to Abraham, but, but it's not for Abraham this time. This time it's for Isaac. And surely Isaac has to be thinking, what are the terms? Is it going to be the exact same? And the answer is yes. God says, Abraham obeyed my voice. He followed my commandments, my charges, my statutes, my laws. He followed these things. We know he did it imperfectly. We know he didn't actually have any commandments or laws or statutes. He was anticipating them from afar. We know that this is not something that merited God's favor. And so then, Isaac is given an example, not just of obedience as such, but but of faith-filled, faith-fueled obedience to God. I would like to spend the rest of this time elaborating on that. Um, But before I do that, before I get too far ahead, I I would like to just pause and zero in on something um, that I think is pertinent here in this text um, to fathers in particular, um, and really to to all parents, to to all older generations, especially to fathers. the greatest legacy that you can give to your children is your own faith-filled obedience to God. I'll say it again. The greatest legacy you can give your children is your faith-filled obedience to God. This is clear from the text. Abraham's faith-filled obedience is held forth as an example for Isaac to then adapt for himself. It's the example put forward by a faithful man for his son. But I think uh, a a temptation in our neck of the woods... um, is to, is to farm that out to other people, other places, other things. And so, instead of giving that example of faith-filled obedience to God, we're content to farm that out to children's ministry, content to farm that out to youth ministry, to put that off on other adults that we think are more spiritual than we are, Um, to expect that example to come from other places besides ourselves, places who get paid for that sort of thing, as if obedience is not a calling on every Christian's life. And it's a tragedy because the one place where a 24-7 example of faith-filled obedience can come has shirked that and put that responsibility off on someone else who cannot be there except a couple of hours a week, if that. But we say, well, no, but my kids are at church. It's good, right? And that is a great thing. If the church is preaching the gospel, if the leadership is consistent across the board on that, absolutely. I love children's ministry. I love youth ministry. If I wasn't in here right now, I would actually be in kids' church. I had to switch with Will, right? I mean, I, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these are unimportant or Unhelpful. In fact, our goal, just to give you a peek behind the curtain as pastors, is to supplement what is going on at home with what happens here in children's ministry and youth ministry. We want to come alongside and help facilitate 
ongoing growth at home, ongoing shepherding and encouragement at home, whereby God's grace it can happen. But, but the, the onus of this is put on Abraham. God doesn't appeal to the obedience of some other man. God doesn't appeal to the obedience of the local group of shepherds who all study the Bible together and don't cuss. He, he appeals to Abraham as his example for how Isaac then is to live. And, and I know that some of you are, are very much like Abraham, um, very, very much obedient to the Lord and, and not in a legalistic sense either, but, but obedient out of faith, out of trust and hope in God's promises to you. I, I know that you are here. And I know that among some of you, your children are, are not obedient to the Lord themselves. They, they themselves are far from the Lord despite your example despite your best efforts, despite your faith, despite your prayers. Um, and I think we as a church body would, uh, would weep with you. And feel that pain and that burden as well. Uh, I know the pastors do. As we pray for families in our church where that is the case, we, we pray very strongly for children of families who um, children don't believe. We pray for that all the time. And I encourage you to keep praying. To bring others in on that effort as well. Don't, don't do that by yourself. That'll be exhausting. Um, Know that the Lord is not punishing your indiscretions and sin by withholding salvation from your child. It's not, it's not how grace works. It's not how the Lord works. Um, my son is eight months old, and um, even now I can sense this uh, sort of tension. Um, I can see it a little bit more every day, uh, his insistence on doing things that might not be as beneficial for him as, uh, as he could otherwise have. And, uh, and I know my faith is no guarantee. I know my faith is no guarantee that he will be obedient to the Lord, that he will have faith and trust in the Lord. I know that. But I don't want it said of me um, that I didn't show him what it could look like. Not a perfect example, but an example. Don't let that be said of you either, Dad. Mom. Grandparent. Don't let that be said of you. Set the example of faith-filled obedience. All right, enough of that. Let me move on. Will Isaac keep his covenant with God is now where we have to turn our attention. That's the, that's the issue at hand here. Will Isaac himself keep the covenant that his father was faithful to maintain? It's no longer about Abraham's obedience anymore. While that was an important example for Isaac to have, no longer counts when it comes to Isaac's actual obedience, right? Isaac has to be obedient now. And so um, as, I, as we go through the rest of this chapter, question maybe that you ought to just consider for yourself uh, is, are you riding the coattails of your parents or another's obedience? Or their disobedience? Are those things that frame the way you live and act and and, uh, and, and have your being, uh, is, is that uh, what you put your stock in, or are you yourself actually striving for faith-filled obedience uh, in your relationship with the Lord? Um, that, that's, that's what we'll be getting at. So, Genesis 26, 6 through 11, it says this, So Isaac settled in Gerar. 
When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And just so we're clear here, when we talk about laughter, I've laughed with plenty of people of the opposite gender. Uh, No one has ever looked at that and said, that's not just your friend, right? All right, there's something a little bit more going on here than than just Isaac and and Rebecca laughing at some joke he said or whatever. Um, A little bit different. All right, so anyway, we'll keep keep going. We got kids in here. All right, we'll keep it going. And... um, How could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. All right, just to summarize, Isaac, he does what the Lord says, right? He, he stays in Gerar just like God commanded him. He, did, he does not go on to Egypt. He stays put. Uh, but then, then he, takes, he takes a real quick uh, 180, I guess, uh, and he, he does exactly what his father had done twice. In Genesis 12 and in Genesis 20, Abraham lies about Sarah. I think it's 12 and 20. And, and now Isaac is picking up the slack exactly where his dad left off. Uh, and then we see Abimelech, this pagan king, rebuke Isaac for his egregious sin, right? Uh, I'm not going to compare them, but if you want, you could go to Genesis 12, go to Genesis 20, and you could see exactly this very same thing play out twice before already. So Isaac, if we know nothing else about him, is just like his father in a bad sense, okay? Um, Abraham set this example for him. Isaac grew up. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's my mom. That's my aunt. I'm so sorry. You know, I mean, Abraham, Isaac's had to deal with this tension before. He's seen it happen, and he's just following in his dad's footsteps, sadly. Um, it brings up the question, just while I'm thinking about it, of this idea of a generational curse. You may have heard people talk about this. Um, it's a common phrase, and, and I think a lot of times people assume that it just means that what one parent or grandparent does inevitably, unavoidably has to be carried down through generation to generation in ongoing spiraling descent of sin and, and suffering and pain and turmoil, right? Um, that, we, don't, we don't really find that in the Bible. That's not, that's not really here. Now, we do see, I'll, I'll just to be clear here, we do see that father's sins are often inherited in the sense that, but as an example, this is certainly what children will see and then embrace for themselves. So yeah, if you're easily angered, chances are your child will also be easily angered. I mean, that's just sort of logic. It's, it's kind of obvious, right? Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there is this permanent perpetual curse that will then transfer from generation to generation. Um, a f- forgiveness is not nullified by the generational migration of sin, right? God doesn't operate that way. Oh, you know, I would forgive you, but um, doggone it, your dad, uh, well, you know him. Uh, I mean, that's not how it works. That's, that's not what happens. Pray, praise God. That's not what happens. Um, and if you want to learn more about that and think more about that, um, I, I uh, in researching this myself, I went to desiringgod.org, their website, and John Piper wrote this very brief little article, which is simply titled, How God Visits Sins on the Third and Fourth Generation. And it's really helpful. Go look that up if you want to read more about it. Um, but Isaac... He just got this promise, he just got this covenant, and then he wanders off, and the first thing he does is lie about his wife, put her in severe harm's way, uh, and really actually threaten the continuation of this covenant to his own children with the, uh, the, the potential staining of his wife uh, and, and certainly any children that she might have had. And so um, Isaac is very reckless here, extraordinarily reckless. You read the promise that God made to him. You saw what it contained, land, offspring, the blessing of the world because of your family. That's a big deal. And Isaac is just playing with fire here. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's funny. Uh, well, it's not funny. Um, 
Isaac, I mean, he's making a mockery of faith is, is what he's doing. And I use mockery specifically. Uh, you, you probably remember when God went to Abraham and Sarah and told them that they would have a son, they both laughed. They were, they couldn't, uh, that's ridiculous. I am a million years old. I cannot have children, God. They laughed at him. And that time when they laughed, it was cynical. It was, yeah, right, what do you know? It was that sort of ha, 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 that's ridiculous kind of laugh, right? Uh, well, then, um, you know, they, they did actually have a son. And uh, their son's name, Isaac, means he laughs. God has a great sense of humor. Uh, and he said, all right, fine, you know what? If that's how you want to do this, when your son is born, we'll call him Isaac. He laughs because you laughed. Right? When Isaac was born, we see laughter happen again. Sarah laughs. It's not cynical this time. It's joyful. Because the Lord's promise has come to fruition. It's happened. She's happy. She's joyful. And so we see laughter again and again. Uh, Ishmael, Abraham's other son, uh, he gets the, the shaft, right? And he's kind of set aside because Isaac, once he's born, he's the promised one. And so Ishmael's sitting there on the side at one of his birthday parties, and he is pointing his finger, and the Bible says laughing at Isaac. Now, we know by this that he wasn't just laughing with Isaac or being joyful. Uh, he, he wasn't thanking God for Isaac. That's not what was happening, because Ishmael ends up getting kicked out, sent on his way with his mom. What, what Ishmael is doing when he's laughing, and it's the same word. I mean, if you look at it over and over again, it's the same word again and again. Ishmael is, is mocking Isaac. He's mocking him. Little baby. That's what he's doing. He's laughing. He's mocking. He's making a joke of him, right? Well, then we come to this. What do we find Isaac doing with Rebekah? The Bible says he was laughing with her. And I already mentioned that it, he's, not, he's not really, he didn't just find some funny joke on Facebook and say, hey, you got to hear this. That's not what happened. He's fooling around. Uh, to put it uh, in a, a helpful sense. Um, but he's not, just, he's not just fooling around with his wife out in the garden. He, he, he is actually fooling around with and making a mockery of faith. Making a mockery of his calling to obey and follow and trust in God um, Is faith a joke to you, I guess, is a good question to ask. Is it a joke to you? Is trust and seeking the Lord and following him, believing his promises, reading his word and embracing it, is that a joke to you? Is that something relegated to sort of the, ah, that's not as important as these other things? Because when we call God's word and God's promise is less important than uh, cutting the grass or something like that, we, or... or, or um, Sorry, football. Uh, when we do that, um, it's coming. When we do that, we make a mockery of it. We make a joke of it. And one litmus test for this is, uh, is fear. First Peter 3.6. He's writing, Peter is, specifically to women. Uh, and it is certainly applicable to men as well. He says this, um, in verse 5 rather, this is how the holy women who hoped faith in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And this is important. And you are her children if you do good, obey, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And Peter's his request here is not that women just sort of have this blind, uh, of, you know, ignorance of what is actually dangerous. I mean, he's not saying jump off cliffs and don't worry about it. I mean, he's saying, look, there are frightening things in this world, but then there are also things that are more powerful than the frightening things, and they should cause you to not be afraid in the midst of things that should cause you to be afraid, because there are more powerful things at work here, namely God Almighty. Have hope. Trust in him. Put your hope in him. And so fear is, is, is kind of a good litmus test here. And we see Isaac is definitely afraid. I feared lest you would kill me because my wife is beautiful, right? Um, 
In what relationships, places, circumstances uh, do you often think the sky is falling? You know, where you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off because everything's falling apart and you're afraid and scared and running around. Um, Think about when that wells up in you. Who are you around? Where are you? What are you doing? Those might be places where you're tempted to throw faith aside, throw your hope in God aside, and, and really just submit to fear, the idol of whatever else is around you. This is especially pertinent if your fear coincides with disobeying clear biblical commandments, clear biblical direction and instruction. What, what is so amazing here, uh, ironic really, is that the people of God, the, the chosen representative of God's people, Isaac, threatens to dismantle all of it with his own fear. Threatens to dismantle everything by saying his wife isn't his wife, have at it, right? But who calls him out for it? It's a pagan king. Abimelech is not, he's not trusting in the Lord. He doesn't know the, king, the, the, the God that Isaac is supposed to worship. And he knows it's wrong what Isaac has done. In fact, he knows the punishment that is due for adultery, which is death. In part because he's seen this happen before. When Abraham stopped by, I would avoid this family altogether if I were him. Um, but he's seen this happen, but even Abimelech knows The wages of sin is death. What are you doing? This is ridiculous. You could have killed me. It's a tragedy when even even the world knows uh, when your faith is disingenuous, uh, when your hope is really rooted in nothing. Uh, It's a tragedy. Romans 2, 12 through 16 and verse 24 uh, gets at this. I'll tell you what, I'm I'm not not gonna go there. Um, I'll say this. Obedience is difficult when your faith is insignificant. Not insignificant in terms of the amount, but insignificant in terms of its importance, what it signifies, what it represents. When it is insignificant, your obedience will be very minimal. If you're finding it hard to obey God, to follow his commands, to obey scripture, it's probably because you don't trust God. It's probably because you have no hope. You have nothing, your eyes aren't set on anything beyond here and now, your own belly button. But if you would look beyond, if you look to Jesus, you would look to the hope that he provides through the gospel, you would find fuel for obedience. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. And we should take heart because Jesus says in Matthew 17, 20, that all that's needed is faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. It's not to say necessarily that faith is really potent, to say that you don't have to have a whole lot of it. We think we have to have great faith that, you know, we believe in. No, what Jesus is talking about here is, look, it doesn't take a lot. Trust the Lord, look to him. It's that simple and that difficult. So what do we mean when we talk about faith-filled obedience? Romans 1, 5, Paul is talking to them, and he says that his charge and the charge of all Christians is to bring about the obedience of faith, which seems like a contradiction in terms, but it's not. Because as we've seen, faith can fuel obedience. Faith can fill obedience. It can propel us to be obedient. Some examples, um, we see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, Right? It's the fruit of the Spirit, which means that the Spirit is what enacts this through us and and out of us into the world. So it's the Lord at work, it's grace at work, and and we receive the Spirit by faith. We see the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, which would be terribly discouraging, except for the fact that the gospel is true. Um, We trust in God's promised salvation. We trust in grace through Christ, not in ourselves. If you were thinking maybe that faith-filled obedience is optimism on steroids, uh, you would be be wrong. It is not saying, I can do it. I believe in myself. I can do this. I can please God on my own. I can earn my way to him. I can compensate for my sin and failures and mistakes myself. If that's what you're thinking, that's wrong. That's not faith-filled obedience. That's rebellion. It is open rebellion. 
It's a disregard for all that God has said, in fact. But as you read the Bible, you see that it is not our hope in ourselves that we're called to do. It's, it's, we're called toward hope in Christ and his work. He's the one who died. He's the one who has atoned for our sin. He's the one who has paid the price that we owe for the debt of sin. He has done it. Will you put your hope in him? Will you put your hope in his work? That is where your obedience can gain speed. That's where obedience is built, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Such that later on God could say of Abraham, he obeyed my commandments. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Christ, not in yourself. Running short on time. You guys hang with me. I love this quote from John Calvin. Brad has Charles Spurgeon. Love Charles Spurgeon. He's great. Uh, He's a great guy. Real smart. If I had my way, we'd be quoting John Calvin every week, right? And we're about to get a double dose of J. Cal, all right? So here we go. The first, as often as the Lord repeated the testimony of his grace to the faithful, he sustained their faith with fresh supports. Every time God said, here's my promise to you, he gave them a little taste of what that would look like for it to be fulfilled. Not just giving them blind hope, but giving them concrete evidence that he's good to his word. And so that's what happens in Genesis 26, 12 through 25. We'll fly here. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar, which is a different place close by, and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled uh, with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. He did not quarrel over it. And, he, and uh, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. The Lord blesses him. Uh, We see a lot of wells being dug, and this should be obvious to us. That's very important in a dry, arid landscape that you have sources of water that are underground. Uh, I'm not going to elaborate on that. Uh, We also see territory disputes arise because of the wealth and the prominence of Isaac. Uh, We see the the envy and and the the hatred of, uh, of those he's living around in the world. Uh, we see this happen in, in Genesis 13, 18, or 13, 1 through 18 with Abraham. We see it happen in Genesis 21, 25 through 33, where Abraham has to make uh, a covenant, a treaty with, this, with Abimelech, maybe his father, maybe the same guy. Uh, but, but this has happened before. And, and what's happening here is that faith in God's promise to Isaac is being tested. God demonstrates his promise And that demonstrated promise, that sign, hey, here's a well, here's a well, here's a well, here's wealth, here's riches, grow, Isaac. All of this is God's way of grounding Isaac's faith in in not just the here and now, but in the future. God's demonstrated promise, his foretaste of the promised things to come, it, it is fuel for hope and future grace, and it is therefore fuel for obedience. 
because we can put our hope in something that is sure, something that is coming, something that is real, though we may not see it. On this covenant, God promised land. He promised offspring. He promised wealth. Therefore, it's necessary that Isaac received these things as part of the the covenant agreement. That was part of the the agreement he had with God. It's not the agreement that we have with God. We don't have an agreement for wealth, land, offspring, prosperity. Our, Our covenant is for something far more lasting, far greater, far more valuable. Our covenant with God... uh, well, it, it results in salvation. All who trust in Jesus and put their hope in him, they find forgiveness of their sin. That is the great reward that we are anticipating and waiting for and leaning forward toward. Christ himself. He is what we set our eyes on as we live in this world. And the beauty is God gives us wells too. He gives us things along the way that remind us and point us ahead and give us hope and it causes us to be obedient fearlessly and faithfully. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 1 through 5, Reynolds said it. Our hope doesn't disappoint us because God has already poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. It's earnest money. God's given it to us. He'll make good on his promise. And you can be obedient because he's given you the Holy Spirit. You're not hopeless. You're not blindly wandering through this world waiting for something that you might have an inkling will come. No, he has called us to salvation. He will bring us through to the end, and he gives us the Holy Spirit along the way. There is nothing better to fuel your obedience than that. Right? He, he gives us confidence in what awaits in the Lord's blessing Paul talks about this in Philippians 1. He says that it would be better for him if he were to die and go to be with Jesus, but that for now it means faithful obedience and work in the meantime, looking ahead toward that day. He gives us confidence in the Lord's presence. Philippians 2.12, it also encourages us to act and to work and to live, knowing that it's the Lord who wills and works in us what he desires from us. These are the wells that we dig up. These are the wells that the Lord gives to us to drink from. This is what sustains us to the end. Another quote from J. Cal here. Truly, we never lean upon a better support than when, disregarding the appearance of things present, we depend entirely upon the word of the Lord and apprehend by faith that blessing which is not yet apparent. Enduring this trial gives us a glimpse at Ike's faithfulness, at Isaac's faithfulness. And he endured the same way that we too are called to endure and the same way that our Savior Jesus endured for the joy set before us. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we see an example of Christ enduring suffering and punishment and pain for the joy set before him, being seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling in this world in full glory and splendor, perfectly restored to his Father. Likewise, we're called to the same thing, and we see examples of this. Isaac, he obeys God first by staying in Gerar. He stays there. God told him to, and he does it. And then he pursues blessing by faith. He goes to one place, digs up a well that his own father had rights to, they disregard those treaties. They fill them back up. They say, move along, get out of here. He moves along. He digs another well. They disregard that. They tell him to get out of there. He moves along. He digs another well. Eventually, he finds a place where he can settle in. The Lord has made room for me. He pursued blessing by faith, knowing that the Lord would continue to grant him what he needed to survive. And the Lord grants us what we need as well. He gives us the word. He reminds us of salvation through the word, through the testimony of others. He encourages us by grace. He gives us more and more evidence of grace in our lives and in the lives of others that should cause us to look heavenward and outward and forward in obedience. And so then uh, Isaac returns to Beersheba. 
But now, it's, now this is Isaac's place, not Abraham's place. Abraham gave it the name originally, I think. This is Isaac's territory now. And likewise, our faith, your faith, must be your own. Remember I asked earlier, are you riding on the coattails of the faith of another? Well, they're, they're good, and I'm kind of like them, therefore I'm good. No, 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 no. Do you trust in Christ? Are you putting your hope in Christ? Are you leaning on him for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, and restoration with God? Are you, le- are you leaning on him, not on another? And your children's faith must be their own. There is a certain amount of grace in the home of Christians. Don't mistake that. Children who grow up in a Christian home are given an example just like Isaac had of Abraham. Doesn't always ensure salvation or faith, but it's a strong argument. You cannot ride the coattails of another's obedience, whether it's a parent's, a friend's, a wife's, a husband's, a child's. You are called to trust and obey Christ. You are. You were called to that. So let's do that together. Genesis 26, 26 through 33, and we'll be done. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the uh, commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeking that you hate me, or seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba, well of Sheba, to this day. Even the world sees the blessing that God has conferred upon Isaac. They acknowledge it, they call it like it is. And Isaac himself receives the deference of a king putting him on par with a king. Isaac has no land. He's a sojourner. But he's treated as royalty in the world where he is because of the Lord, because of his work toward him. Verse 28. um, The king says, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us. The world is drawn to displays of faith like that. As we faithfully obey the Lord, follow his will, receive the word, do what he says, as we do that, as we look ahead towards something greater than the here and now, um, the world takes note. In a commentary I read on Genesis uh, This guy named Alan Ross, he says, If believers were truly confident that God would supply all their needs, no matter what hostility they faced, their proclamation of the faith would be far more substantive and convincing. Faithful obedience is not a guarantee of worldly friendship or prosperity. It is a means of fulfilling God's promise to bless the nations. As we carry the gospel forward in the way we live and what we say, Ultimately, cherishing Christ and the rewards found in him above all else enables us to be fearlessly and faithfully obedient in a world that is in rebellion against its creator. Let's pray. If the guys with the band come on up. Lord, we... uh, We're challenged by your word. We are drawn to you, and at the same time, we know that we are insufficient for the task. You call us to obedience, but we know that in and of ourselves, we have none. We are not righteous on our own. We're rebels against your will. But you call us by grace. You give us your son, our Savior, and you call us to trust in him, to look to him for salvation, to look for him for righteousness. You tell us to believe. Help us to do that. Help us to believe. Help us to have faith. To follow Christ to the end. To be obedient on the way.
follow your word, to obey it. Not to earn your favor, but because we have it in Christ. So be with us as we respond in songs, we worship. Draw our hearts and our intentions toward faith-filled obedience this week and every week. In Jesus' name, amen.